Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Aldrich Chan to the show. To the show, I should say. Dr. Chan is a neuropsychologist, CEO, and founder of the Center for Neuropsychology and Consciousness, otherwise known as CNC and an adjunct professor for the doctoral program and master's program at Pepperdine University. He is also the award-winning author of a book called Reassembling Models of Reality, Theory and Clinical Practice. Today, we will learn more about his academic and professional journey, what inspired him to specialize in neuropsychology and consciousness, and hear his advice for those interested in building a successful career in neuropsychology. Dr. Chan, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to walk through your journey. Um, I always find myself telling my guests that part of the fun for me is actually learning about your journey and doing all of the research associated with your academic and then eventually your professional journey. So first mm -hmm. off, we usually talk about your academic journey. And I noticed that your bachelor's degree in psychology, you received that at Carleton University in Ottawa, uh, in Canada. So tell me a little bit more about your undergraduate experiences. And how did you end up at Carleton? <laughs> so I have a diverse background, to say the least, and I'm actually Canadian. Okay. And so that's one of the major reasons because uh, the tuition was much cheaper. <laughs> sure. And I actually applied also to Ottawa U and, and a few other schools and Given the um, nature of Costa Rican mailing service, I actually didn't receive the acceptance from Ottawa U until much later, and I got Carleton first. Um, so that was sort of by chance that I ended up going to Carleton, and I didn't end up specializing in psychology until about second year university. The first year, I took a smatter of different courses. My parents wanted me to get into business, and I suggested maybe I'll get into marketing. So. Um, I always knew I was interested in psychology and philosophy, actually, after I took an elective in high school. And so I took a few of those courses and I decided, or at least I told them, that I would take the psychology route to get into marketing. Um, but at that point, you know, probably by mid-second year, I ended up taking abnormal psychology and um, sensation and perception. And these courses really changed the direction of, of my life because I absolutely fell in love with those courses. And I also wanted to get into a field where I can basically um, include myself in the process of, of, of healing and use that knowledge in a way that is practi practical. And so Basically, from that point on, I ended up take, doing a few, um, I did some volunteer work um, in Peru and worked at some orphanages. And I realized, oh, I'm actually relatively decent working with people. And so I decided to move forward in that direction. Um, when I decided to specialize in, in, in neuropsychology, or at least when I, the, the inkling of curiosity came into my mind, really came when sensation and perception as well as um, the, the work at the orphanages sort of converged. And I realized 
there's so much information from neuroscience and psychology when put together um, could be so valuable to, to so many people and could really help direct uh, treatment. And basically after I graduated from university, I'm in Carleton, I, I, I should also add, I did some research with uh, Dr. Um, Amadeo Dianjuli, who is an Italian researcher looking at mental imagery, the vividness of mental imagery, as well as um, other, uh, we could say, um, cognitive neuroscience um, topics. And when I worked in his lab, I, I also um, fell in love with the idea of, of incorporating research as well. Um, ultimately, though, I, I decided to to move forward and and try out for the masters and then move into the, the the doctoral program. But I guess before moving forward into those domains, did you have any other questions for the undergraduate experience? No, I, I mean that's a good summary. I did. That's actually a good transition because after you were finished at Carleton, you then attended the Chicago School and I believe at the Los Angeles campus for your masters in psychology and marriage and family therapy. So. You know, a lot of our listeners ask our guests, well, how did you decide to go to X school for your master's or Y school for your PhD or your doctorate or your PsyD or EDD? So kind of give us a little background. How, what was the process related to how did you decide to go to the Chicago school versus some other schools? And in particular for your master's in clinical psychology and marriage and family therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll be very um, honest, especially since I know there will be students listening. And, you know, I had multiple interests as I was growing up because I'm, I'm also a musician on the side. And so part of my uh, childhood dream was always to join with my bassist <laughs> and it, we would move to Los Angeles and play music. And um, I decided to, to, to try both. And being Canadian, I also needed a way to stay in the United States. And so I did apply to a few schools. And then the Chicago School of Professional Psychology was the one that that drew me in, partially because of the fact that it was built and, and sort of created for lots of uh, working professionals, which afforded them time to also do other things on the side. And so basically, that's how I got into it. Um, what threw me off guard really was how much I was drawn to the clinical work. Um, and the other part was the fact that Chicago School, the LA satellite campus was just developing at that time. And so uh, I'll put it this way, there were some amazing professors and there were also some, uh, I will say suboptimal professors, at least professors that weren't my, my taste specifically, but the ones that were amazing um, really helped inspire me um, towards seeking out different opportunities and also um, really helping out with my clinical skills. And, you know, when I started my first uh, externship there, it, it was a place called uh, Positive Alternatives for Youth. It no longer exists now. But, you know, I worked with a lot of, you know, court-mandated cases and, 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 and other cases that came from the community with severe mental illnesses. And I also got to work with many different couples. And I, I, I just fell in love with the profession. And I realized at that moment, I could do, I could be playing music um, and regardless if I made it or not, which I didn't, <laughs> I, I was, you know, I was like, you know, this, um, this work is something I can definitely see myself doing for life. And so I really uh, dedicated uh, my my heart and my spirit and, and all the above towards towards the profession at that point. And 
And uh, although my grades weren't the greatest in undergrad, I was a straight A student when it came to grad school and as well as my doctoral program. And we'll talk about your doctoral program in a second, but I do have to do a follow-up question. Are you still playing any instruments, having fun on the side? <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's it's definitely, I'm still creating new songs. Um, um, I, the band lasted until I was matched at an internship site and had to move out of Los Angeles. But I was, uh, <laughs> I was a psychology extern slash intern by day and a musician by night. Um, I still play. I still play music and with with uh, lots of different people, and so that's definitely something that that I, I enjoy quite a bit. What instruments do you play? I play guitar and I sing. Okay, all right, acoustic, I imagine. I uh, both actually. Both. Oh, okay, yeah. all right. There were a lot of transitions. We were a rock band. It turned into an alternative rock band. I did a lot of acoustic and. Um, a lot of acoustic shows in, in in actually in Canada with a bunch of other musician friends. And then when I went to Los Angeles, we we played the main areas, um, areas like Whiskey A Go-Go or the Viper Room mm -hmm. and all these famous places I was so excited about and realized that we had to, to evolve a little more as a band to play festivals. And so we turned into like an electronic rock band. And and now I'm sort of going back to the to the roots of, of acoustic and getting more into jazz and classical. Well, that's cool. I, I know a lot of the musicians. My daughter plays acoustic and a little bit of electric as well, and they're they're different. So you have to uh, you have yeah. to uh, plan for that. I mentioned Pepperdine. So you attended Pepperdine University for your doctorate. You, you earned actually a PsyD in clinical psychology. Mm -hmm. There are many schools. Um, I'm going to share my screen now, but there are many schools in California. It's one of the top uh, states in the country that actually highlights psychology, and so. I was going to say there are many schools in the state of California. So what specifically drew you to Pepperdine? So one of the books that I read in my master's program that really inspired me was a book called The Neuroscience of Psychotherapy. And that was by Lou Casalino. And he works at Pepperdine University. And that was the, the first sort of um, straw, we could say. Um, the second was the fact that um, I, I started also getting into, after reading his book, into other books from the interpersonal neurobiology realm, we could say. And more and more, I realized that Pepperdine was was um, well connected and, and also the fact that it was um, one of the top schools. And when I basically finished the neuroscience of psychotherapy, I'm like, this is the person I, I need to work with. This is someone, you know, and you know, honestly, that was the main drive for me was working with Lou <laughs> at first. And then I realized when I got there that all the faculty there were just absolutely stellar. And and honestly, my experience there was is, is heartwarming. It's 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 an amazing experience and definitely grueling at times. And, and they put you through the ringer, but in such a great way, in a, in, a, in a safe, it's a safe environment. You get so much supervision, amazing mentors, and all of them are just um, you know, well-seasoned psychologists that that really know everything <laughs> that there is to know about like recent research as as well as um, all the, you know, uh, clinical techniques that that you may not have heard of. And it's it's just wonderful with the, the diversity of faculty that they have there. The other question that I have to ask is that, you know, we typically think of people who go into the clinical psychology route, especially uh, receive their PhD. Now, I noticed that you received your PsyD. At what point did you kind of have to 
figure out, hey, should I go the PhD route or the PsyD route? And give us your thoughts on why you went the PsyD route. Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned before, I worked at, at a research lab at Carleton. And although I enjoyed the experience, I also kind of realized that research wasn't entirely for me. Um, quantitative research, especially, there's a lot of, uh, we'll say, homogeneity in, in work and lots of repetition and numbers. <laughs> and, and I was really more about the interpersonal experience. And so I always knew that I wanted to be clinically uh, clinically oriented. And, and that's basically what led me towards the this ID. Okay. And any advice that you'd have, we're going to talk about your teaching as well. I mentioned that you uh, are working, you returned back to Pepperdine and, and actually you're teaching as an adjunct professor, but any other advice that you'd have for students who are interested in pursuing this career and um, whether or not they should go the PhD or PsyD route? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, the first thing I would say is to be very proactive. Uh, by that, I mean, reach out to people and the, the similar, the way that I re reached out to Lou Cozzolino or, or Dan Siegel and all these people. And, and I, and I, then I became part of the group, which was amazing. Most mm -hmm. Most professors, like if you're reading a, a paper that you find very interesting or a topic that you find interesting, you know, people are usually shy to, to email the researchers and so forth. But lots of times they will respond and, in fact, are flattered by people reaching out to them. Um, so I would say, you know, be very proactive, um, be very patient. It's a process. It's not necessarily the shortest process. There are lots of ups and downs. It can be very challenging, but there really is a light at the end of the tunnel. Um I would also say be very um, or, or try to harbor an exploratory attitude um, because psychology is becoming more and more interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. And so to be open minded and explore your interests and whatever makes you feel more lively, um, look deeper into that, into those topics. And, and again, reach out to reach out to people that may be involved. Um, remember also if you or once you get into a doctoral program or master's program that school is a place to make mistakes and to seek assistance. You know, lots of I think graduate students come in within uh, with a know-it-all attitude, and I'll admit I was like that in the very beginning also. But I then realized that you're missing out on lots of the benefits um, and supervision that you won't get once you finish and once you graduate. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think those would be important pieces of advice that I would I would give to students. I'd also piggyback off of your comment of you're kind of in a safe environment to make mistakes. Yeah. Uh, once you graduate, and especially once you get um, a fellowship or you you know find your first job, if you're staying within the academic field or even outside, now you uh, are the person who is saying stuff who. Uh, has to take responsibility for what you're saying. And of course, you're going to make mistakes as well. But I had one guest on that was talking about the the biggest change for her was when mm -hmm. she got her um, professorship. Now she had to realize that, oh, my gosh, I, I, I can't say whatever I'm thinking all the time, because now I represent myself, the department and the school. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of, on the one hand, it's kind of too bad that you can't, you know, talk uh, and, and freely talk uh, and, and think about what you want to uh, say and then share that versus on the other hand, you do have that responsibility because you now represent your department in that university as well. So absolutely. 
among other experiences, and of course, we're going to share all of these uh, uh, when we go live here. I'm going to share my screen again. And among all of your experiences, uh, you worked at Mindsight, and you already mentioned uh, one doctor that you worked with, Dr. Siegel. Uh, and you'll see some other work experiences here. You did your postdoctoral fellowship in neuropsychology at the University of Miami in the Miller School of Medicine. Then you were a research associate at the University of Miami and did research on PTSD and the default mode network. So I'm leading up to my question. Tell us a little bit more about the default mode network. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, my dissertation with Causalino actually ended up being on the default mode network. And it was really great that I was able to continue with some quantitative research, actually expanding upon the um, dissertation. The DMN or the default mode network is a neural network. So basically multiple areas in your brain that are simultaneously active when you are engaged in what we call internally directed cognition. We could also think of the word introspection that would be associated. So when you're not engaged on a particular task, let's say, and you're in your mind and you're, you know, thinking about a memory or you're thinking about an interaction that's occurred, your default mode network would be active. Okay. Mm -hmm. If it has also to do with your sense of self and, and, and social cognition or your ability to interpret and understand other people. And so what I was interested in was how PTSD might impact this resting state network. And I say that in quotations because your brain's never actually resting. <laughs> and so um, that's what that's what that was all about. And we're actually still working on, on publishing that paper. And we're almost completed, but there have been some changes that happened throughout. And uh, did you want me to go deeper into that or... No, that's a good uh, high high level view. As you saw, I was sharing my screen and there's multiple resources out on the internet on DMN as well. I just shared one that uh, pulled up right away and it, it was a good summary uh, and how you apply DMN to different areas. And you said you're applying it to PTSD as well. So um, I mentioned that you were an adjunct professor at uh, Pepperdine. So you became an adjunct professor um, in an interesting kind of way. I believe you're actually sought out by Pepperdine to teach as an adjunct professor. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So the online program um, is the one that I teach for because I live in Miami. <laughs> um, and basically, you know, um, Lou was uh, was an, as, was acting also as a, a online professor alongside Dr. Burke, Dr. Harold Burke, who was um, actually my professor back in the doctorate program. And I actually ended up becoming his T.A., and basically, there was a slot available. And so uh, Lou recommended I, I join the team. And Dr. Burke was very happy to have me on board as well, since we've worked together in the past. And, um, you know, after that, the rest is, is history. Um, Dr. Burke was on for, I think, about a year, maybe two with, with me as working under him. And then um, he eventually uh, uh, stepped aside and I ended up taking over and became course lead for mm -hmm. the physiological psychology classes. And at this point I'm teaching um, two classes and there are four professors that are that are working with me. Lou actually being one of them. So it's funny because he was my my boss, so to speak, but now I'm his boss. Well, the other thing that I wanted to kind of touch on is um, 
when you become a professor and not only a professor, but now a course lead. So that's something new that I've had on my guests when they've uh, mentioned that I've talked to directors of, you know, programs and directors of um, uh, different institutions as well. But define for us or kind of explain to us, what does a course lead person do? Yeah. So there are other professors who are teaching the course, and there are, of course, new hires um, from time to time. And so the course lead is about managing those relationships, as well as designing the course, assigning the textbook, um, talking about or putting together the, the topics that will be uh, lectured on, as well as putting together all of the exams. Okay. That's basically what the course lead does. Okay. Well, it sounds good. I know that um, you opened your own practice uh, about the same time, as I recall, when I looked at your history, about the same time as when you actually started working as an adjunct professor at Pepperdine. So um, look back and, and think about some of what were some of the biggest challenges associated with opening your own practice. And the practice, again, I mentioned in the intro, is the Center for Neuropsychology and Consciousness, otherwise known as CNC. So tell us a little bit more about some of the biggest challenges associated with opening your own practice while I share the screen. Yeah. So th the first thing to note is you have to make sure that you have enough savings to open up a neuropsychological practice, because in order to put together the, the lab, ultimately, there are lots of materials and tools that you need to purchase and get all the licensing and all that sort of stuff. And um, I know numbers are always of interest. Um, although I started my practice about, I think, three and a half years now, mm -hmm. um, it was about 25000 for me to put everything together. And so that's 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 number one. Uh, number two is making sure that you have a referral stream. And one of the things that I was nervous about was the fact that um, I wasn't sure I would have a big referral stream. I knew, of course, like I'm in good relation with my my peers and colleagues and old supervisors at, at Jackson Memorial Hospital at University of Miami. But um, at the same time, there's only so many people they can refer. And so um, I started off actually bringing on insurance. And so I, I signed up with four different insurance panels and um, that was probably uh, somewhat difficult to accept because number one, they don't, uh, I'll be honest, they don't pay you very well. Um, but number two, there's a lot of documentation that comes along when you submit um, to, to, to get paid or compensated in the first place. Um, so I, so that's how I started off. And, and, but the good thing is you do get lots and lots of referrals, of course, from insurance as well as, as other professionals that are out there. As long as, it's also important to have a very a relatively good internet presence because there are lots of professionals out there and not so many neuropsychologists out there that it's saturated. And so it's likely that if you have a good internet presence, they will find you and they will just put you on a referral list and send you patients. And that's also another way that I gain traction. Um, a third way was is really social media. I started an Instagram account um, at Aldrich, at Dr. Aldrich Chan, and and basically um, it it actually ended up being very I would say successful for the amount of effort that I put into it, and it garnered up to I think it's like nineteen thousand followers now or something, and basically it's a free education platform that I provide to others, and so again you know I'm I'm kind of emphasize 
the, the necessity to be very proactive, especially if you want to start your own practice. And um, the other thing that, that that I've done to to assist, because you might be thinking, oh my God, that's so much, that's so much work, right? You, you have to put posts every every few days, and then you have to see clients, and then you're teaching, and then you're writing books and all this sort of stuff. But you know, the other thing that you can do, or at least that I've been doing, is is you know, um, actually there are two students in my first or second class at Pepperdine that reached out for a volunteer experience. And basically, I, I I was of course I was open to it, and and they also help out with that education platform. So, I want to of course thank my students for assisting with with that. It's very important. Um, so you know, I help mentor them, assist them with writing skills, and we meet monthly and and we discuss different topics that would be of interest. And you know, we talk about what it is like to be in private practice if they if they're interested in it, and and so forth. So it's it's very much mutually beneficial. And so they're they're a team of very smart individuals that are very helpful to to helping me out there. Was that the team that was listed on your about page that I uh, was sharing on the screen? Yeah, yeah. Okay, exactly. all right. So let me kind of give a summary. Your practice CNC uh, provides neuropsychological and psychological services, education, cognitive remediation, and independent consultation. For those uh, who may not know the difference between neuropsychological and psychological services, tell mm -hmm. us a little bit more about the differences between the two. Mm -hmm. So neuropsychological services involve an assessment, mm -hmm. and we are assessing different cognitive faculties. So what I mean by that, for example, someone might go to a neurologist because they're having, let's say, memory difficulties. And let's say the neurologist finds an area of their brain that may be impacted. And so then they would come to us to help them determine what type of memory has been impacted and how severe it's been impacted. And then on top of that, what would be the best recommendations for them moving forward? And so basically you look very closely at um, how your mind is functioning ultimately, and how your brain is functioning. And that's exactly what we do. And so, you know, a, a typical person might come in at 10 a.m. here, and they'd stay with me all the way until 5 p.m. And there's an interview in the beginning that's like an hour to an hour and a half long. And then we move in for the rest of the day for, for testing. Then two weeks later, they come back. I provide them a feedback session and uh, as well as a comprehensive report that basically is pointing out their strengths and their weaknesses and, and of course, what they can do to improve their current condition. Mm -hmm. The psychological side is, is really, it's, it goes to psychotherapy and that really the way I define it is the development of a relationship um, <laughs> in conjunction with the skilled use of psychotherapeutic techniques in a safe environment to promote changes in brain functioning. So, okay. Well, thank you for that. I know a lot of people, uh, as soon as they hear neuro in front of any word, they think the brain, uh, but how do you assess the brain? And so you you gave a good summary there. Of course, we'll uh, add these uh, websites when we go live as well. Yeah. Your work tends to you know bridge the gap between academia and practical applications in neuropsychology. So how do you see this balance benefiting students? Because you're teaching students and it sounds like you're mentoring students as well in their educational and professional journeys. Mm -hmm. So as important as subjective experiences are, internal experiences are for the people that you're working with, we also have to understand the objective that exists out there. 
And it's always going to be, especially in our field, a balance of the two. You can't mm -hmm. neglect one over the other. And so it's very important for me, and, and I'm saying this because uh, to emphasize it, even if it may sound obvious, that both of them need to be integrated in order for the most um, efficacious treatment. And so if someone is struggling with anxiety, for example, and they're, they're in the clinic with me and their sympathetic system, their fight flight system is highly active, you know, one thing that I might do and, and, and I might use to guide my treatment would be to activate their parasympathetic system. And then this is where different techniques might come in, something like diaphragmatic breathing or, or whatnot to mimic what they might experience in safe states of being. And so that's one way, a very simple example, of course, of how to use neuropsychology to guide treatment and practice. Here's a good transition to talk about your book. And uh, you have multiple uh, publications out there, but the one that I'm focused on because I did more research on this and I have... Uh, I saw some videos uh, when you introduced the book and, and as well as some other videos where you kind of gave an update uh, on the book. And of course, I'm referring to your award-winning book, Reassembling Models of Reality, Theory and Clinical Practice. It uh, actually is published in one of the prestigious interpersonal neurobiology series. It received the 2023 Nautilus Book Awards winner in the category of psychology, mental, and emotional well-being category. So tell us a little bit more about this book and how it felt to receive that award and recognition. Mm, yeah. Well, it, it felt very nice. Um, <laughs> I can't complain. Uh, the book itself is really a culmination of... Uh, existential questions that I actually had, given the intersection of neuroscience and psychology, and the questions and mysteries that still that that still exist there. And so, um, to put it simply, we can say that the book is about the mental traps that we tend to fall into, and how those traps may come from your biology your psychology, your social experiences, as well as your cultural and what I call your existential experiences, which was my really my attempt to to knit together those who are atheists as well as those who are religious, because we all have meaning systems that drive our behaviors. Um, it goes deeper into consciousness, however, also because at the end of the day, there are many different ways of interpreting scientific information. And one of the dominant views has been materialism, meaning that the mind is simply matter and eventually the mind can be reduced to matter. Um, that, however, um, lo and behold, and I didn't know this until um, well, probably a couple of years ago, they're not this, they're, that materialism and science are not the same thing. In fact, materialism is just, it's a worldview. It's a way of interpreting that information. And what's really exciting about our field right now is that number one, it's becoming more interdisciplinary, but number two, there are now other theories that are being taken, that are be being considered seriously as being a replacement for materialism. And this moves into areas like panpsychism and, and idealism, and I, I don't wanna go too deep into those things, but it's really considering consciousness as being more fundamental to our experiences um, and to reality in and of itself. And so, Underneath it all, all of us are operating from a meaning system, whether we are aware of it or not. And so part of my desire for this book was to bring out the different types of models that actually exist in the world that are still compatible with science. 
I uh, looked at some of the videos, as I mentioned, and you actually have one video that uh, uh, refers to your uh, YouTube uh, video where you introduce your book, and then another video that talks a little bit more in depth about it. And as I recall from listening and viewing some of those videos, originally it was designed more for the clinical you know, receiver or the clinical person. But the reviewers were saying that this is a very good book for even the, the general population to learn more about themselves and how to apply some of the uh, uh, teachings in the book as well. So talk to me about that a little bit. Now that it's been out for a while, um, tell me um, how you have seen it used by other people and how you're going to extend it. I know that you're working on something that is extending it as well. So, Yeah, so... If you are interested in neuroscience, philosophy, and psychology, because mm-hmm. that really is um, the, the 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 three um, domains that I've sort of knit together in the book. If you're interested in those fields, you will probably enjoy the book. Um, if you're not, you're probably not going to enjoy it because you might find it too wordy or there are too many theories in there. Interestingly, I actually started writing it for the public and then when I talked to Norton and I submitted the book, they said we should make it more clinical because the interpersonal neurobiologies is a clinical series. And so then I then I um, basically went through a bunch of edits and iterations and eventually made it more more a little more clinical. Nonetheless, as, as a general reader, you can always skip the clinical parts and still gain, I think, a lot from the the theoretical and, and practical parts that that still exist inside the book. Um, and the way it, it's put together really is, again, it, it takes the bio, psycho, social, and existential approach, and it looks at all of these domains of functioning and looks at the different filtration systems that exist there or the different veils that that may occlude our ability to view reality more objectively, and, and that's what it's all about. Um, you're a mentor and an educator and a researcher and a writer. Um what strategies or resources would you recommend to your current and future students to stay updated with the latest developments in neuropsychology and consciousness research? So for me, there's, there's no shortcut to this. Um, you know, I could, I could say, go to my Instagram account <laughs> and, and stay tuned because we're always doing research to see what the newest articles are on different topics and, um, to make sure that we're not, um, you know, um, putting putting something out there that's outdated, but it it really has to do with with um, consuming information that you're interested in and following the researchers that you're interested in, looking up articles and papers, and and making sure the filters um, allow you to look at papers that are no older than ten years. That being said, there are still some amazing papers that are older than ten years, but many of those foundational papers. Um, you can probably ask your your professors for or or, or others um, because um, those those papers are are usually still being um, taught about in in different courses. Mm-hmm. So um, I know right now podcasts are of course are, are of course very popular and and so there are different science podcasts that are quite reliable. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll throw out Huberman podcast. I mean that I think is so popular at this point, but he is a very reliable researcher and he does bring to bring to light a lot of the most recent research. And so that's also a shortcut way to do it. But really, um, if you were serious about this, it's important for you to go to the source 
itself and look up the actual articles and read them. And one good way is to go to the references of these papers. And whenever they, you know, reference a part or cite a particular fact that you find interesting to look at that paper and, and so mm -hmm. forth and sort of go down a rabbit hole doing that. But there's no way you can consume all the information that's out there, but you can consume bits and pieces. And then the ones that really interest you dig, dig deep into them. Very good advice. So let's look at what you're doing. You're a mentor, you're a coach, you're a teacher, you're a professor, you're a writer, researcher, and you're running this business CNC. Um, what are what are some of the biggest challenges that you experience either on a daily or weekly basis? And how do you kind of overcome them? Because you're so busy with your, you know, you have your toes in, in a lot of different pools here. You even mentioned it yourself. You brought it up and you say you're you're doing a lot of these things. So tell us how you manage your life and, and what are some of the biggest challenges and how do you overcome them? Well, I would say actually, number one, that that one of the benefits of having my own practice is that I can always pursue what interests me. Mm -hmm. And that is that's amazing. <laughs> that's something that I absolutely love. And one of the reasons why I got into private practice in the first place. So um, that being said, of course, there's the necessity for time management and making sure that there's time for, for myself and, and my family and, and, and so forth. And so really um, developing a good work life balance that works for you is going to be important. Um, my mind naturally careens towards um, multiple different interests and things. And so, uh, you know, at one point when I'm wearing the therapist hat or the neuropsych hat and so forth, for me, it's really fun. And I'm, I'm very blessed to, to have found an occupation that provides both intellectual stimulation as well as emotional satisfaction. So I really don't burn out. But um, if, if the audience would be interested in hearing, um, there are some self-care things that I do engage in. Um, and that's that I recommend to everyone anyways. And, and that is, you know, making sure I'm getting adequate sleep every night, making sure that I'm exercising. I, um, I, I have a personal trainer. Um, we do HIIT exercises, high intensity interval training. Um, I also do Tai Chi. I'm, a, I'm big into meditation. Um, so that's something that I do. Uh, I try to do daily, but I, I do it at least five times a week or so. I also run meditation groups. And so that also keeps me accountable. <laughs> um, and uh, I like doing using the cold plunge. That's another thing that I was okay. doing. Um, so those are all the and, and the sauna. Those, so those are all different things that I that I that I make sure to fit in because I know that if my mind is 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 feeling refreshed and renewed that, that I'll be um, 100% there for whatever it is that, that I'll be, you know, confronting throughout the Sounds day. Sounds like uh, you want to be present in whatever you're doing. And so in order to do that, take care of yourself. I did read someplace that you speak multiple languages. You speak uh, um, native English and Spanish, and then uh, a little less so Cantonese, and then a little bit of French that you uh, uh, keep up <laughs> with. So do you find that you have to use multiple uh, languages either in at CNC or while you're teaching? So Spanish, yes, definitely. Okay. Living in Miami and even in when I was in Los Angeles, when I was at Children's Hospital, I was I was both an extern as well as a bit of a translator, which made things quite interesting because my supervisor at the time, um, um, she's Latina. 
but she doesn't speak Spanish, which was really funny. And so here comes this Asian guy speaking Spanish and translating to the parents. It was a really funny dynamic. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely still use Spanish in my practice and I see patients in Spanish. Um, French, not not so much. There were a couple of times in the, when I worked at Jackson that French came up, but my French is nowhere near good enough to, to work with anyone clinically. So I'd steer clear from that. And as for the Cantonese, I unfortunately I'm illiterate, <laughs> but uh, I do speak Cantonese and I have been working on improving it, especially with um, actually the next project that I'm working on, which is another another book that it's in the midst of being reviewed right now. Fingers crossed everything goes well. Mm -hmm. um, but other than that, um, that I mean, that would be what I would say about that. OK, I should mention and I forgot to mention this when we were talking about uh, Pepperdine. Uh, you're an adjunct professor for the doctoral program, which is actually ranked or was ranked number five for the best PsyD program and for the master's program at Pepperdine, ranked number one for the best online master's program as well. So uh, I'll include those links when we go live with this uh, um, uh, podcast episode. The other thing that I wanted to uh, follow up on is, you know, one of my last questions before we get into kind of the fun questions at the end here that I usually have is, you mentioned that you're working on another project, another book that's uh, being reviewed right now. Are you able to give us a teaser on what that is? Sure. Um, so this one is definitely written more for the public than the previous one. Um, the title right now is Becoming a Force of Nature. And so oh. I hope it's a catchy <laughs> title. And it's an exploration, and, and it really is sort of building off of the previous book, actually. But it's an exploration of science, which seeks to measure and uh, um, uh, measure nature, basically, and processes in nature, as well as Taoism, which is a, an ancient Chinese philosophy, um, which I would call a, a living philosophy that seeks to embody the principles of nature. And so what I was curious about was how these two may intersect with one another. And right now, I would be in agreement with some other people out there that say that there is a meaning crisis in our society. And, you know, yes, there are religions and spiritual practices, but there is a bit of a decline that's occurring with the with science coming up. And so my goal is, well, is there anything similar here between between Taoism and science, given that they're both all about nature? And so um, putting these two together and and um, consulted with a bunch of Taoist uh, uh, experts and scholars of, of, of different kinds um, and then basically integrating findings in neuropsychology and and the philosophy of Taoism and and see what resonates and see what can come from from these two um, different ways of of thinking. Um, so so that's that's what it's uh, that's what it's about. And I think that's yeah. Well, thank you for the summary. We'll look mm -hmm. for that book. Good luck on that as well. Any other projects or events or opportunities that you'd like to discuss or share? I think the last part is I, I recently started the the what I'm calling the SAGE program. And it's a program for, for young adults, really, because I think one of the things our education systems are lacking is uh, education on things like emotional regulation or, you know, life philosophies and, and ways and, and knowledge that might guide people towards living a life that is more meaningful as well as acquiring the skills and techniques and experiences to regulate themselves emotionally, especially with this age of technology. I'm quite certain, but I, I don't have all the research on this, that um, 
that let's say the internet or, or, or different specific types of technology are, are changing the ways that our brains are organizing information. And so I think now more than ever, it's going to be important for uh, young adults um, to, to gain those skills as they develop through time. Okay. If you've seen some of our podcasts, we usually end the podcast with a few fun questions. And I usually ask this one first off, tell us something unique about yourself. Hmm. Well, I grew up in Costa Rica, <laughs> so I, I think that's relatively unique. Um, mm -hmm. I shared that I'm a musician as well. Um, well, I mean, I, I, is that is that unique enough? That That is. Uh, when you combine <laughs> everything, everybody, I've had other guests say, well, I don't know if this is unique, but when you combine multiple things, uh, right. were, were you born in Canada or did you... So yeah, so I was born in Canada, and then okay. I moved to Hong Kong for five years. Okay. And then I moved to Seattle for two, and then I moved to Costa Rica, and okay. uh, seven years old then, and then I lived there until seventeen. My family still lives there, so I you know try to visit every year. I when I think of home, it's it's I do think about Costa Rica, even okay. though I would say Costa Ricans wouldn't say I'm Costa Rican. The Canadians wouldn't say I'm Canadian. <laughs> and say I'm not really American. So, uh, you know, I'm really this sort of, uh, uh, what are they, it's a salad bowl now or, or melting pot. I don't know. I think they have new terms that, that keep coming out that I'm inundated by at this point. But, you know, it's a mix of different cultures. So I'm quite yeah. multicultural in that respect. I think when I was going through school, it was uh, a melting pot and then it became a salad bowl. And I yeah. think they have a new one now. So I think you're right. They came out <laughs> with a new one. But, but uh Nevertheless, I think more and more people are, are are a mix of cultures, history, experiences, and it it helps us uh, as a nation to uh, and um, to have those type of people. This is kind of a fun one. Now think back of um, some of the terms and principles or theories that you like. So I ask, what is your favorite term, principle, or theory, and mm. why? So one of my favorite um, theories actually comes from um, someone I very much admire. It's a philosopher named Alfred North Whitehead. And basically, he came up with something called the, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. And which is basically um, a, a simpler way to say it is that we confuse abstraction with concrete physical reality. And so, you know, there's nothing that's physical that lasts forever. Like even atoms, when reduced to subatomic particles down to energy, we find there's no substance, just relationships among relationships undergoing process. And so the reason why I like it so much is because it emphasizes the point that we are all processes uh, through and through. And what we see as stable substances is but an illusion of, mm -hmm. of activity. And so substances are really processes in relationship with one another as opposed to substances undergoing activity. And what this does is, I believe, uh, instill hope for, for change. And it's it, it provides us with a, a different, I think, philosophy of life that can, that can help us move beyond some of the obstacles that we feel are recurring and rigid and difficult to change. I think you're very thoughtful and you've talked about uh, philosophy and, and incorporating that. So I'll ask this question. What's one of the most important things you've learned so far in your life? Mm. One of the most important, like through, through education or 
anything that you've learned so far in your life? What's one of the more important things that you've learned? And it could be something recent as well. Hmm. I think one very important thing, and I learned this a while ago, but it's it's worth mentioning again, and it actually also answers the previous question, but it gives you another one, is the idea of eustress. Um, stress being um, the fact that mild to moderate levels of stress can be actually beneficial. Mm -hmm. I think um, in the past, you know, we all sort of uh, fall into this trap of pursuing happiness. And happiness is a very vague term depending on, on you know, the ways that you might define it. But when it comes down to it, sometimes people come into the clinic and they expect that by the end of, of, of all the sessions, you know, perhaps they will be in this state of complete bliss and, and, and peacefulness. <laughs> you know, there's nothing else that they'll experience again that will be negative, right? And eustress tells us that stress is inherently a part of our lives and it's built into our systems. Mm -hmm. And so pursuing happiness itself might be a bit of an illusion. Rather, it should be more like pursue the, the ability to prevail in the face of, of challenges. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, that was uh, a psychological finding, a robust one that can be incorporated into one's life. And, you know, when you do feel stressed the next time, it's not necessary to say that, you know, oh, my God, I'm so stressed out. Something's wrong with my life. Right. As soon as someone says, oh, you're too stressed out or whatever the case is, there's there's it's you know, there's an implication that there's something wrong. But it could be that there's something right that you right. are moving forward in a direction and 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 forging a, a meaningful path ahead of you. So I would say that, that that's a, an important one. Um, and let me just throw in one short one here, because this one really changed me when I was in the second year of undergraduate. But it's the stoic saying from, I think it was Epictetus, who said that it, 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 it's not an event that bothers you, rather it's an, your interpretation of that event, mm -hmm. which is also sort of the basis of CBT. Um, but that interpretation is entirely up to you. And so uh, whether you choose the negative one or the positive one, I would suggest you choose, of course, the most adaptive one, as long as it's it's grounded in, in, in what's most realistic as well. I like both of them. I can relate to the eustress uh, in that when I was in my graduate studies and I was helping people overcome their um, speaking apprehension. And so uh, we would go through some... Um, some steps, uh, whether it's visualization, whether it's some other way of overcoming that stress. And uh, a lot of times, if you're stressed before an important event, that actually helps you do a little bit better. It helps mm -hmm. you focus. And it actually tells you that it's important to you. It matters to you. Mm -hmm. If you don't feel any stress uh, under certain environments then uh, in situations, then it probably tells you that they're not really interested or it, it really doesn't uh, matter to them. And so I can kind of relate that to a different kind of situation as well. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other advice for those interested in the field of neuropsychology? Hmm. So neuropsychology is a very specific discipline and it's, it is very competitive. Um, I will say though, that I, some of the common questions asked of me, like when people are applying to grad school and they want to become a neuropsychologist, um, some people are saying that they there's no neuropsychology specialization track, for example, and that because of that, they've put the school aside. And my big suggestion here is don't, don't do that <laughs> because what's more important are the connections that your school has to different um, hospitals or practices 
that have neuropsychological training. So Pepperdine, for example, doesn't have a specialization neuropsychology track. There are advanced classes in neuropsychology and so forth, but not like a specific track. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you um, are looking at different schools, you know, one question you might ask would 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 be in relationship to the the externships or internships that they are connected to. Um, because at the end of the day, most of the training is going to happen at these sites, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, if you go to a, a good neuropsych training, you will have didactics, like there will be lectures weekly, and there will be all sorts of opportunities available to you, especially if you go to a hospital, like when I was at Cedar sinai or Children's Hospital or Rider Trauma Center, whatever the case is, there were tons of different opportunities. And my suggestion would be that, you know, once you get the school and once you're in these sites, to really, really make sure that you, um, again, proactively um, engage some of these resources. Like if it's a brain cutting seminar, go do that. You know, if it's something not even entirely related to what you're interested in, still might be beneficial because you don't know the types of connections that you might form as as you're engaging there. Like I said, it's becoming more interdisciplinary. People are looking to explore different types of research that bring in psychology or bring in neuropsychology and so um it's it, and so it's important to to you know really um really just dive in fully uh, into the experiences that are and opportunities are that are available to you very good advice one last fun question if you had the time and money to complete <laughs> one project or go on one trip what would you do To complete a project or go on one trip. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting one. Huh. I mean, there are definitely lots of places I want to travel to. And in all honesty, a lot of the projects that I've been wanting to complete, I've been able to complete um, on my own time. So I'd have to choose trip. Okay. <laughs> um, I would probably at this point. Well, right now, what I really want to go to is is actually is Eastern Europe. That's one place I have yet to get to explore okay it was All right. also kind of interesting to um i would i would guess you know just because i'm i'm a i'm i'm a, i'm a fan of, of carl jung and and i i've been to switzerland before but at the time i didn't know that much about his work and so um i would also like to visit some of some of the museums there about him and, and his and his and his home that's available to the public um and maybe dig deeper into the roots of 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 the birth of our field so okay and then venture into into Eastern Europe because I love you know um, history and knights and castles and and all that sort of stuff. It's it's always been I've, I've just always loved that stuff. So, <laughs> all right, well, sounds good. Is there anything else that you'd like to discuss or bring up on this podcast? I think that's it. Thank you so much, Bradley, for your for your time and not the opportunity to be here. I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule as well. Uh, Thanks again for sharing your journey with us and especially your advice. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. 
And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.